You're tuning in to Tales from the Desolate Highway, your one-stop shop for the history of post-apocalyptic literature. I'm your host, Nathan Ogloff. Let's fire this bad boy up. After much swearing, frustration, and crying, I finally, finally finished six critical scenes in my fifth draft. I'm on, the fi- I'm on the final stretch. I will probably be done by the next episode. So look out, world. Uh, and that's how I've been over the past two weeks. How have you been? Suffering as much as me? Uh, God, I sure hope not. Other than that, I've been doing Instagram book follow trains. And I managed to get my followers above the 300 mark. So uh, I'm proud of that. And if you haven't done it, I'd highly recommend trying it out. Because it's a good way to... Expand your platform and build up your following. Anyway, enough of that. And now for the moment you've been waiting for. Drum roll, please. This week's book, Tomorrow's Yesterday, written in 1932 by John Gloag. So here's what happens. It's uh, three million years in the future. Humanity's gone. A race of cat people now inhabits our planet. I don't know if you guys remember a show. Uh, and you probably do. It sounds like something you'd remember. A show called Red Dwarf. It kind of reminds me of that, where one of the characters is descended from one of the ship's cats. So anyway, uh, it starts in a new theater in London, showing a film that depicts the, the decline of humanity into a degenerate race as a result of war. That's right, it's another we kill ourselves off due to war. And if you guys aren't already tired of wars involving total annihilation, then just wait until you see what I have in store for you. Anyway, back to the story. It's a critique of then-contemporary society as viewed by our two main characters. Two cats that travel back in time to observe us. That's right, we have time-traveling kitties here. How exactly they do this? Uh, I'll speculate on further. The novel states that they first travel back to 1932, which was the present for this book, and explore the world. Stay for the next 31 years, or just jump ahead in time to 1963, which presumably was when the war erupted and we undid ourselves. Afterward, the two cats take the uh, last civilized man with them to the future. Last in terms of they stuck around until there was only one civilized person left when everyone else had gone back to a life of savagery. And that's the book. I know what you're thinking. Jesus Christ in a handbasket, that was the quick summary. Have anything else for us, Nathan? Well, the answer is no, I don't. Uh, I've mentioned before that some of these novels, they just fade into history. And I think this is the king of them all, because I couldn't find even a quick summary on it. Not from any website, not even from reviews online. Nothing. So that's why I was so vague earlier. Uh, uh, but it's left me with plenty of opportunity opportunity to guess what happens, like how do the cat people not get noticed? I'm assuming it's because everyone just thinks they're regular household cats doing their thing, nobody the wiser. I think it also works because I saw in an internet picture where aliens come to Earth and long story short, they think cats are the dominant species because they got the humans doing all their work for them while they just lie around. So it makes sense that they can be the ones that rise up, but can also travel back in time and hide in plain sight. There is one part where the cat people argue that people, human people, are too controlled by sex, and because they aren't, they are somewhat of a superior being. That and the fact they can time travel. But this idea of dealing with superior beings came up in other books, too, around this time period. 
Now, with all that being said, I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark here and guess what happens in the book. There's probably a part where the two cat people have a witty conversation where they take jabs at each other and this happens before they enter the time chamber. They then go back after the time time chamber sends out a crap load of electrical arcs. Then they wind up in a park. It's a lot of Terminators and Star Trek The Voyage Home vibes I'm sending out here. But the cat people get separated and try to find each other. They are disguised as actual cats now, which in itself presents a problem. Then a nice lady finds one of the cats and takes it home, where it stays for a couple of years. The other is a street cat trying to survive. Both offer different perspectives into our society. Then the cats eventually find each other. After the owner dies and the other is rounded up by animal control. The cat with the owner being taken to a shelter because there is no one around to take care of it. And the cats manage to escape. At one point someone would almost be onto who they were. But this, but then this would get averted. Finally in the end the cats use their full powers to take the last man away since they no longer really need to hide who they are and that's my take on what the book is probably about and with that being said i'm going to spend some time talking about the author john gloag himself uh, there's probably someone out there screaming argh you keep mispronouncing his name well sir or madam i apologize in advance so Gloag was a soldier in World War I serving with the Welsh Guard, but was later invalided after suffering a gas attack accidentally from his own side. Now, as we've seen, those kind of experiences really do shape our perception of the world. For example, he had anxieties about the fruits of progress as well as the fact that civilization could crumble because the elites and post-secondary educated people didn't see the value of having proper skilled craftsmen around. I mean, when you lack those guys to keep the buildings you live in maintained and any other infrastructure, yeah, it could happen. As for influences on the book, it was influenced by the time machine and in a sense is a reversal on that story. And it was also influenced by Olaf Stapledon's Last and First Man. There is even a similarity with another book we've done, Theodore Savage, in terms of pointing out the fragility of civilization and the cynical nature by which those, those in power don't value those that do the grunt work enough. And another book that shaped the story of this one was The People of the Ruins, particularly in how people go down the path of raw barbarism and never look back. And that's pretty much all I can say about this week's book. Tomorrow's Yesterday, sometimes written as Tomorrow, where the T and O are separated from the morrow with a dash. Written by John Gloag, Glog, Glog, Glag, uh, 1932, however the hell you say it. Alright, so, uh, because I didn't have much else for you guys today, I'll end up uh, this episode with an excerpt from my novel. Now, it is the very beginning. It's what you're going to open up to and dive into right away. And it is my fifth and final draft. I might make some changes here and there in the future, but nothing too major. And even that is an if. So, without further ado, I'm going to start reading it in my gravelly voice like this. Here I go. Part 1. The Machine Right The broken world Shindo Dakan was thrust into would take an especially unconventional type of person to fix it. The young man in his early twenties doubted who that type of person was, but he knew that the prosthetic arm intended for a boy around ten years old was at least a step in the right direction. It was about time somebody did something right, if no one else, then him. Shindo rubbed his bald head as he tried to gauge how the push switches should be calibrated. He had fine, ovular eyes, but parts 
This small required the mounted magnifying lens at his schematic table. The arm roughly resembled a human arm from the elbow down, complete with articulating fingers and wrist. Figuring out how an adult would have responded to an adult-sized prosthetic was difficult enough. One created for a child was next to impossible. But Shindo had a knack for engineering the impossible. Machines and mechanics was a gift of his for as long as he could remember. It now felt more like a curse. Shindo had been under the servitude of Arch Lord Chief Vibrant Magrite for ten years now, creating devices of terror and destruction that paved the path of his conquest and eventual birth of the domain. This arm, Shindo hoped, could at least find him some redemption. His one piece suddenly felt tight. Hard to believe, given his short, thin frame, he had been working tirelessly all day. Shindo could lose track of time easily as he immersed himself in his work, but it was the late hours of the evening. The sweat on his tanned skin reminded him even that was a stretch. He got up and adjusted the strings on his side. A one-piece was a singular garment worn by the masses that covered the body and had sleeves for the arms and legs. There was a string on the side for adjusting the torso height and one on the waist. Similar strings existed on the arms and legs. Shindo's head almost spun. He had been sitting for longer than he thought. He stared down the shop garage, his home for the past decade within the wolf's den, as he gave himself a breather. It was a two-story high rectangular space. Across from his schematic table was a simple wooden table and a cot where he slept every night. Down the room was the forge, followed by the prefab station on one side and the various vats of oil, hydraulic fluid, and quartz sand. Overhead was a small crane that ran on two rust-colored rails down to the end, the finally the final assembly station. From there, his creations would exit out the two large sliding bay doors. Many vehicles had gone out through those doors into the central yard adjacent to the barracks and right next to the exit out of the wolf's den, the chained battering ram, the ghost flame tank, and the climbing jackhammer, all his brain children. Shindo sat down and looked at the prosthetic. It was a small way of turning a wrong into a right. He continued on for a little longer, but he was starting to feel the edges of fatigue creep in. Shindo had taken his utility glove off, glove off hours ago, and it was now lying on the table to the side. It was useful for quick markups on metal and a good place to store small, fine-tuning tools. He took out a small pincer head, good for the smallest of screws, screws from one of the glove's pockets. How big around was Tate's arm, the boy for the, the prosthetic was intended for? It couldn't have been much smaller than his own. Tate did look like he was going to be a large person when he got older, but Shindo couldn't have been sure. He spent a little more time making adjustments, calibrating it the best he could for a child. Shindo wouldn't know for sure if it would work until Tate actually tried it on. He'd find out tomorrow. That was all the work he could do for today. Shindo turned off the light, went over to his cot, and lied down, never on his right side because it had a branded scar in the shape of wide, gaping wolf jaws. The muffled voices of the wolves then felt oddly absent, as if the whole base had emptied to attend the spring festival upon the mountain. He closed his eyes, the dark space still containing the faint red glow of the low rumbling forge. It brought one of the few comforts he had. Another was the fact that it gave him solitude, where he could be left to work undisturbed. The shop garage was a secretive realm, inhabited by a man, shrouded in the name The Machine Right. Next time on Tales from the Desolate Highway, it's a milestone episode, episode 20. And what better way to celebrate than with a legend, a fucking legend of science fiction. 
The book is called The Shape of Things to Come, and it's by Jules Verne. No, I'm kidding. The other legend of science fiction, or another legend of science fiction. He brought us War of the Worlds and blew us away with the time machine. That's right. My first time doing a book by the icon himself, H.G. Wells. You've been listening to another episode of Tales from the Desolate Highway. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at UnusualAuthor and Instagram at UnconventionalAuthor. As always, thanks for tuning in.